The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Hello, this is Bjorn Munson. And this is Bill Coughlin, a.k.a. William R. Coughlin. Thank you for joining us for our second Jet Chat. We're planning to have these episodes throughout the year when uh, one show ends and before another begins. This gives us a chance to give you a a little bit of behind the scenes of what happened on what you just heard and a little preview of what's to come next. So, as of last week, the first season of Rogue Tiger has just ended. So this seems like an opportune time to talk about that. Yeah, well, uh, first of all... (laughs) <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, I, I know the shtick is that a writer can't stand their work and their neurosis goes up to 11. And, but it's just been an absolute joy to hear these scripts come to life. Uh, like, I, I heard them recording, but now even more as we've mixed them. And um, I think it really helps with your work if you have brilliant actors bringing your words to life. And and really making those words and the characters their own. That's uh, one of the reasons I absolutely love working on film and other collaborative projects. Uh, but I'll talk more about that in a few weeks as we get ready for Quorum. Mm-hmm. So uh, how about you talk a little bit more about uh, Rogue Tiger? Uh, first off, this uh, Rogue Tiger turned out to be an object lesson in delayed gratification because I started writing Rogue Tiger back in 2007, 11 years ago. (laughs) And as I talked uh, about a a little bit in the first Jet Chat about how I I came to be doing Rogue Tiger, when I made the decision to create Jabberwocky Audio Theater, I knew I didn't want it to be just one show. I eventually wanted Jet to be a platform for other voices and and lots of stories to be told. And I knew I I didn't want Jet to be just an anthology show, as it were, Mm -hmm. like just, you know, one shots and occasional miniseries. I love and and have loved serials growing up. And clearly from the direction TV has taken of late, a lot of people like Mm -hmm. serialized storytelling now. So as I said before, I'm a big fan of sci-fi. I love the world building. I love the possible futures. Uh, In fact, since 1998 and doing the math 20 years ago, (laughs) which is disturbing, I've been playing around with a bunch of world building of my own about a a far off group of neighboring star systems, seven systems in all, where Terran colonists, people from Earth, sent out sleeper ships and they had created their own civilization uh, separate from the Earth. Now, this all was going into a novel about the settlement of an eighth system, Vendawunjo, and a bunch of short stories I was also cooking up that sort of fleshed out the world. And and none of those, not the novel and the short story, none of them felt like a, a TV series, or, or in this case, a radio series. Um, none of them necessarily had that ongoing adventure or cliffhanger feel uh, like I felt I wanted to have Jabberwocky Audio Theater to have. Mm. Uh, So I thought of pushing forward the timeline to a more space opera pew-pew setting, you know? Uh, Let's have those seven systems now be the core systems of a human-dominated interstellar empire. And all of a sudden, things began to click a a bit more for an ongoing adventure series. You can have rival houses vying for control and an emperor or an empress pulling their own strings a la Dune or or many other sci-fi traditions. 
And now, doing a show about a lone ship with a small crew going on adventures and this kind of setting, well, that felt like something I would both enjoy writing and I could write a lot of. So then uh, let's touch on that. Uh, Previously, you had mentioned that you've mapped out a full eight seasons of Rogue Tiger. Yes, and I debated about how much backstory to go into here, but I already mentioned I started work on this in 2007, so I might as well say that I originally planned out four seasons of Rogue Tiger. But they were four 30-episode seasons. 30 episodes. Yes. So each season would be six five-part serials. Uh, And it made sense at the time. I was actually thinking we could do this weekly. But uh, that was before two kids came along. Uh, Yeah, speaking from experience, they do have a tendency to alter plans. That they do. Uh, So here's the thing. I wrote, and as Bill knows, we recorded the entire first season from 2009 to 2010. That first 30-episode season. And then kids. And then kids. A lot of other life happened. Uh, Anyway, when I got back to the point of being able to relaunch Jabberwocky Audio Theater, I realized that a 30-episode season of Road Tiger just was not going to be sustainable. So luckily... I had put something of a mid-season cliffhanger at the end of episode 15. That's now the season one finale you just heard. And there's the added benefit that you get to be both the first voice and the last voice we hear in the season. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I don't think that's going to happen again. I actually had another actor in mind for Joshi Borte, but one of the other things we discovered in recording these original episodes, and I think we found it with uh, recording Quorum, is how much of an adventure scheduling all the actors can be. So in this case, the actor uh, that I wanted to play Joshi wasn't available, but all the rest of the cast was, and I decided... I could be sufficiently surly to play Jochi. He's actually based on a couple people I knew in school who seem to have perpetual chips on their shoulders. All right, then. So uh, that's something that uh, we could talk about as well, some of the inspirations for the characters. Yeah, sure. So one of the things I wanted to do first, and we've talked about this a bit, was to develop the Tiger's crew. For show purposes, this is handy because you basically have an ensemble that you can get a lot of scenes and a lot of stories out of just from their interactions and wants and needs and what have you. And they can be interesting in and of themselves. Uh, all right, then let's uh, let's run down the crew. Uh, start with uh, Aiden Vosky. He's our audience translator character, uh, I guess you call it, especially in the pilot. I, I think it really helps to have a character who isn't entirely up to speed with their surroundings. Uh, so think John Crichton in Farscape uh, for a lot of it. Uh, and, and especially for audio, because then this audience translator character can ask questions and describe things, and it makes sense narratively. Mm. At the same time, and, and even though he is totally the callow youth character, I don't want him to be an idiot. And I think you see him getting more comfortable with his role and and being an adventurer of sh- uh, uh, and being an adventurer of sorts as the season goes on. I think you'll definitely see that as we get to the end of season two, what was originally going to be season one. Uh, he is, as the actor who plays him, Nick DePinto said, Wesley Crusher, but Wesley Crusher with balls. Uh, and and that's something I really wanted to bring to the series overall, is that all of the characters have agency. None of them is out-and-out out stupid. They're, they're trying to do well. They're trying to accomplish their goals, right? They are capable, 
Even Rickon and Jochi in Uninvited Guests are pretty capable. They just can't anticipate our heroes because our heroes do some illogical and insane things. All right, uh, this might be a good time for a light spoiler warning for those of you who have not yet listened to all of Rogue Tiger Season 1. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm assuming that you're listening to this after, what, like five or six minutes? You've listened to all of Season 1 of Rogue Tiger. Uh, otherwise, listening to me right now is probably really boring. Yeah, so that's Aiden. I, I really worked on having a character arc for the first 30 episodes for him and also for Reg McCorum. All right, then. So let's talk about Reg McCorum. Uh, yeah. So he's our tarnished knight character, if you're thinking of Joseph Campbell in the metaphorical sense or uh, Jack Campbell in the literal sense. When my brother read the script, he called him Malcolm Solo. And, and I do think you'll find some of Han Solo and Malcolm Reynolds in Reg McCorum. Uh, now, when Brooks auditioned for him and then got the part, I did decide to make the character a bit older, and that actually opened up a lot more extensive backstory, which we will eventually get into. Reg has a solid lifetime of deeds he can regret, so in some ways there's more tarnish than night, but some of what you'll hear in the first two seasons is very much an arc that's about redemption and him trying to find his new place in the span. And uh, that that's going to get even deeper in what is now season three. Okay, well, let's not, not jump ahead too far just yet. Uh, uh, what about uh, the rest of the crew? Uh, what about uh, Dr. Shen Enling? This is an adventure. And in fact, if you're thinking this small crew is not dissimilar from like a uh, role-playing party, you're not wrong. So you need a healer character. And it's just good on a ship to have somebody who's at least a medic. But why stop there? So... Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is one of my favorite movies, and mm-hmm. anyone who's seen that, that first scene with Marion Ravenwood, instantly, you know, you're having some ideas, and when you think female Indiana Jones in space, well, here we are. A different kind of doctor, though. <laughs> yes, uh, she's a doctor who does help people, at least for more than punching Nazis. Not that she won't do that. If space Nazis show up, she is punching them. Well, she has already shot people. <laughs> yes, uh, kind of like uh, Dr. Bashir in the Dominion War. She's had to make her peace with the Hippocratic Oath and violence, and Hippocratic Oath does exist here in this universe. And like Dr. Franklin in Babylon 5, she is absolutely into xenoarchaeology, uh, something that's going to come into play in later seasons. And uh, and then there's also going to be a lot more emotional journey as we get more of her backstory and why she's out here with the captain and company. Okay, so uh, let's go on to our alien crew members. How about uh, Grania? Yeah, so Grania is based on three people, two very real, one fictional, and then, of course, everything that Aaron has brought to the part. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I knew I wanted to have alien characters in the crew because, well, again, they can just be fun to write. But also, if you think about, um, I just mentioned Babylon 5, uh, think of that or any of the iterations of Star Trek, alien characters can comment on behavior in a way that the human characters can't. So, so yeah, fun to write. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, specifically with Grania, I wanted her character and to a major extent her species to be very accepting if you think of Dr. Phlox from Enterprise, he's more amused and appreciative of the humans than, say, the Vulcans who have an illogical stick up their posteriors. So uh, speaking of not being fans of humans, that probably brings us to Tormar. Uh, absolutely. Tormar comes from a long line of alien characters in, in all sorts of stories that really are not impressed with humanity. And he's quite smart and capable, so I mean, it's not like he's mm-hmm. wrong. Kutharians in general are very, very arrogant. 
Uh, here, I'm taking cues from a lot of cultures throughout human history who were absolutely sure they were not only uh, humans, but the absolute best humans. But to be clear, he is not at all human. No, he, he's something out of a, like a Lovecraft fever dream. <laughs> Uh, but he has three stumpy elephantine legs, nine very well-articulated tentacles, I will call them tentacles, not arms, and 27 eye stalks, which, as we establish in the pilot, are usually in constant motion, unless there's one focused on you. Uh, so I-, I love writing Tormar, not just because of his imprecise phrasing. Uh, Spranta, uh, Spranta, rather, is probably his seventh or eighth language, at least, and but, but also I love it for from his point of view. So so you get more Cutharians and more of Tormar's backstory in season two. Uh, I'm, I'm also very excited for his overall series arc, which was the last one I came up with for all the characters. It was the most difficult to figure out. Now, you did mention Spranta. For the listeners who don't know, uh, which I have to imagine is most of them, uh, <laughs> why don't you explain that a little bit more? Oh, yeah. So, um, so the idea is there's a, a generally mandated language in the Imperium that everyone uses. So we're here in the U.S. writing stuff in English, and we're going to keep on doing that. But the conceit is... Thousands of years in the future, in this corner of the galaxy, they speak their own mother tongues, but they also have to speak this official slash trade language, which is a descendant of Esperanto, hence Spranta. For all the other real languages you hear, they're stand-ins for other fictitious languages. So you'll hear Mandarin Chinese for Sindasian, uh, which is what Enling and many of the inhabitants of Shantung and Shinwake Prime speak. Uh, Batori, which is mentioned in Uninvited Guests, is in that region of space, which is one of the reasons you hear warnings in Spranta and Sindasian in the last episode, besides being just sort of a, a call out to Firefly, because that's fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, listeners can learn more about this backstory of the span on our website. Yes. If you do go to jabberaudio.com, there's links off of the Rogue Tiger page and occasional blog entries about the Encyclopedia of the Imperium where I share a lot more backstory that I've developed. Uh, Yeah, speaking just for myself, I've always been a big fan of that kind of uh, behind-the-scenes material, fleshing out a fictional world, Uh, maps, blueprints, additional detail, uh, everything from Mark Okran's Vulcan language books from Star Trek to the planetary maps of the Fireflyverse to the Haynes manuals for things like the Death Star or the Enterprise. I actually have a full set of blueprints for the Enterprise D, deck by deck. Mm. Uh, Speaking of building out the world a little bit more, we had talked about sharing some behind-the-scenes work done with the recording. Well, some of you listeners might remember there was a scene where there were two Flat Rock peace officers, I mean cops, really. They come across Reg when they're trying to get away from the warehouse. So one thing we've discovered is that during recordings, if you want to have someone trail off on a line or fade in speaking, it's better just to write out all the lines and then do the fade in or fade out of the dialogue when you're mixing. So what I did was have the cops have a heated discussion about how things are going down in Flat Rock. You, the listener, in the final episode don't hear much of it, but for me, the writer, and for the actors recording, it gives us a lot more of the backstory and the situation in the episode that can come into play with the performance. Uh, So now we're going to let you hear the whole conversation. Look, it doesn't matter if we find the parps or not. We round up the usual suspects, arrest a few, charge a few, case gets closed. I'd feel better if I knew this sort of thing didn't happen. Yard murder I'm okay with, but this this is destroying the city infrastructure, you know? They're not city warehouses, right? And besides... 
We got plenty of them. What about the firefighters? Yes, those puke some practice. You're all heart. I'm not the one taking a warehouse fire personally. All I'm saying is it seems like an escalation. Someone blew the lock and the doors, and did it to make sure our investigation units couldn't lift any prints. I don't like that kind of muscle loose. I'm telling you, it's cyclical. There's some new players in town. They want to throw their weight around. Six, eight months, we're back to normal. Yeah, until the next cycle begins. Who do you think pays your salary? All these spacers coming into port. Oh, don't give me that docking fees and whatnot. Spacers are cheap. You ever worked in Morgantown on the night shift? Ha, no, it's your turn. Don't give me any, have you ever worked Morgantown? I'm a dozen cycles up on you. These eyes have seen plenty, my friend. That's so. Well, I guess you were waiting for me to notice that guy lurking in the alley. Maybe I was. Maybe you were. Maybe you were just going to walk right past them. Hey, you there! I don't care what they say. I have a contract that says we deliver within the hour or we lose the Hey, buddy, we're talking to you. Excuse me? Who are you? Listen, I'm going to have to call you back. You got a hearing problem? I said, who are you? Who I? I'm someone who's trying to find out why my cargo's sitting on the docks thanks to you people. Tell you, one of those guys sounded fairly familiar. (laughs) Yep. So uh, are we going to have these guys pop up again? We are going to return to Flat Rock, so um, maybe. Now, uh, we did ask our listeners for some questions in advance of recording this, and we did get a couple of questions. Yay, questions! So, uh, first up, how did you do all the sound effects? Did you create them yourselves, or did you get them somewhere? Okay, the short answer is, it's a mix. Uh, Some we created ourselves, some we bought. Uh, I do work as an editor, so I have a sound effects library I regularly use, and I believe you got some sound effects specifically for Rogue Tiger. Yes, uh, some of the rocket thrusters and jet noises were not going to be ones I could easily easily find and record anytime soon, and so we got those, as well as some of the door sound effects. But uh, you also went out and recorded some sounds. Uh, Why don't you talk about some of those? Uh, Yeah, so this, by the way, is absolutely one of the most fun things about doing audio theater, or, or really, it doesn't have to be audio theater, I suppose it could be film, but... But that is recording sounds and using them to build sound effects. So some of them are fairly obvious. Uh, Like I had an old Mac computer that you'll hear is the Tiger's uh, navigation computer warming up. But some of you may also remember a couple of times in the season where you hear the creak and groan of both the Tiger and the Silver Star's holes. Uh, That is actually one of the dumpsters where I lived 10 years ago. When I wrote the pilot, I had this particularly creaky dumpster in mind for the sound, and when it came time to do the mix, I went down to the dumpsters with my digital audio recorder and spent a good chunk of time experimenting with different speeds of creaking. (laughs) Did uh, anyone ask you what you were doing? Uh, I think uh, one of the neighbors poked their head in because I was making a lot of noise, and I said, it's an experiment, or something like that, and they quickly went on their way because they didn't want to know more. (laughs) Um, But... Probably one of my favorite stories uh, about sound effects is, it's personal. It's about the bridge controls for the tiger. So, uh, you see, uh, Bill's already heard this, but growing up, my family and I had a Lowry electric organ in the house, sort of an 800-pound antecedent of maybe a a Casio keyboard today. Uh, In fact, this Lowry behemoth had two rows of keys, so two keyboards, and then this other row, this whole bank of effects switches for the best trumpet and flute sounds one might make with an electric organ in in, in the 1950s. So 
we never became really good organists, my brothers and I, uh, but we had no end of fun clicking the multiple switches and trying the various effects that were built into this instrument that, that it had honest to goodness vacuum tubes. Um, so this was really sort of our full size starship playset. And the journeys we went on and the battles we fought were, of course, the stuff of childhood legends. So all the tiger controls you hear switched on and off are actually recordings I took of those organ switches. Because the kid in you knows that's just and right. And it's also fun. It is so much fun. And now you probably get what I mean by uh, saying it's a mix for the sounds. Because we use sounds we bought and sounds we recorded ourselves together. Uh, That arrow-breaking sound in the pilot... Look on the bird side, Aiden. You should have no trouble with the jump at this point. Okay. That's a rocket thrust sound with the dumpster creak and an actual fireplace fire. And, uh, Bill, you also had some fun building the sound effects for the blasters. Yeah, I really did. Uh, My first attempt was to just use some of those library sound effects, uh, but they had a tendency to come across as, well, synthesized or fake. It's the kind of thing you might put under a music bed, but, but nothing that would feel believable in this world. And I was always fascinated with what Ben Burt and his team did generating sounds for the original Star Wars, uh, hitting high-tension wires. But uh, not having any nearby, I went down to the local store and spent $3 on an old-school metal slinky. And with a little modification, that metallic reverberation effect ended up being perfect. <laughs> I was actually shocked at how well it worked, so with a few additional elements added in, that's the basis for our blaster effects. A low-tech solution to a high-tech concern. Exactly. Uh, Okay, uh, second question. Will Aiden get to meet his father? Uh, So we mentioned the the spoiler alert at the top of this, right? Yes, we did. So assume that whomever asked this or is interested in the answer has listened to season one. Okay, so I I won't give you the out-and-out spoilers, but if you've heard season one, you've had pretty much all the characters. Note Aiden is is particularly driven, and we also know uh, one of the reasons he's out in space is to find out what happened to his father, who left him at some point when he was younger. Now, we don't get a resolution of that in Season 2, the original Season 1, but I can say that, yes, Aiden will find out what happened to his father, and I'm not going to say if that involves meeting him or not. Got to keep the options and the, uh, the questions open. All right, so this is the first of our episodes, which is expanding from under 15 minutes to closer to half an hour, but that still means our time is coming to a close. Uh, Anything else you wanted to say about Rogue Tiger? Well, uh, some of you will have looked at our show notes on the website, so you know all the names, but I wanted to take this moment to just thank our wonderful cast and crew for season one. Uh, For those of you actors who hadn't worked with me at all before this, I I know you were taking a leap of faith and trudging up the stairs to the, uh, uh, let's call it a cozy office space in Mount Pleasant and audition for this thing. Uh, I I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to your work after all this time. And uh, I should also thank Fosco Bolger, my fellow producer in development through casting, uh, Barry Gribble and Integral Arts for supplying the aforementioned cozy office space for casting, Kevin Good, uh, both as an Integral Arts co-conspirator and the sound maven who turned us on to the Russian Octava microphones that we're using to record a lot of Jabberwocky audio stuff, including this right now. 
Amy Fang helped us with translating certain phrases into Mandarin Chinese. Anything we got right is thanks to her, and anything we got wrong, that's on us. Tim Munson and this guy named Bill Coughlin helped review drafts of the scripts, sometimes completed frantically just, you know, shortly before record dates. I I also want to thank my wife and kids for supporting me doing this, uh, disappearing to write more scripts and mix more episodes for hours on end. And uh, finally... I want to thank you, the listeners. I'm hoping a good number of you have listened and enjoyed season one of Rogue Tiger, and we're really excited to bring you season two next year. The universe is going to get a bit bigger, uh, the stakes are going to definitely get higher, and there's some fun new characters as we go beyond the frontier and back to the heart of the core systems. And uh, and I'll stop there before I reveal too much, but I I hope you join us. Okay, Before we go, do you want to talk about what listeners will hear next week? Ah, yes. We have a special hour-long episode. It's an adaptation of H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and it's set right here in Washington, D.C. in October 2018. This is in part in honor of the 80th anniversary of Orson Welles' historic radio broadcast. In fact, you may remember we did this as a live performance with live sound effects on Memorial Day weekend. Now all of you get to hear it. So until next week, when we'll be up to our red weed in Martians, this is Bill Coughlin. And this is Bjorn Munson. Thanks for listening.